Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, with an emphasis on verses 11 through 16. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of God. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and we've been saying that Ephesians, in a sense, is Paul's case for the church. And uh, we see in verses 1 to 6, Paul writes about the great unity we have in the church. 4 to 6, he says, we share in the same spirit. We share the same Lord, one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we share in the same God, the Father uh, of all. There's a oneness there. And then he goes into verses 7 through 11, and Paul writes about the great diversity we have in the church. To each one, grace has been uh, given as, uh, as, as has been apportioned to them. Jesus ascended on high, and he gave us gifts. That's what he says. And uh, today we're looking at verses 11 to 16. We look at unity in the church, diversity in the church. Now Paul's teaching about true unity in diversity. And he says, this all goes all the way back to chapter 2. He says, this is one of the biggest ways that we experience the incomparably great power of God. It's what makes Christianity unique. And the reason is because, for example, in the New Testament era, um, how did Christianity spread in the New Testament era? Scholars will tell you that the Jewish community in the ancient Roman and Greek times, the Jewish community, they took care of their own. They were very good at that. It was, that's natural for you to take care of your own. It's very natural. The Greeks, they took care of the Greeks. The Romans, they took care of the Romans. But the Christians, they took care of anyone. The Christians took care of everyone. And the reason why is because if the gospel teaches that we're all sinners, that there's no one righteous, not even one, but through Jesus, everyone can have access. You can have access to God. You can be in. Then, well, Christians, they took care of everyone. They took care of everyone because if you can see your sin and God faithfully saving and loving you through Jesus, then anyone can be in. This is the end of superiority. This is the end of our biases. This is the end of we versus them mentality. And so Christians, they took care of everyone in need. We're sinners. We're dead in our sins. We're made alive. We're made new in Christ. And there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. And the church, Paul says, the church plays a vital role in the life cycle of a believer. And so this passage is going to provide us with keys to what it means to grow in the church. What is spiritual maturity? And we see three points. Three Ps. One, the process of maturity. Two, the problem, which is spiritual immaturity. And thirdly, the power for spiritual growth, spiritual maturity in the church. The process of maturity. 
to the problem, which is spiritual immaturity, and lastly, the power for spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. First, we're going to look at the process, and we're going to go through this quickly, so hang in there with me. Verses 7 to 10, Paul says that every Christian is endowed with gifts, and these gifts are used to minister to other people. And so he starts to lay that out. In verse 11, he says, uh, we've got the ministry of the word, essentially. These giftings are the ministry of the word that he's laying out. We've got the apostles. They have vision. They direct. You have prophets. They counsel and they admonish and they discipline. And then you have the evangelistic and the pastoral and the teaching gifts. And Paul says, you need to submit to them. Submit to these leaders. Submit to the counsel of the word. These leaders are called to prepare you. They're called to equip you for what? for works of service. We're all called to works of service. We're all called to go. We're all called to serve. But you need to be prepared. You need to be equipped. And these leaders are called to equip you into this deed ministry. The logic of the text lays out a process for spiritual maturity. What is that process? One, we all need to come under the ministry of the word. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. We call that discipleship. Two, what's the purpose of the ministry of the word? The purpose of the ministry of the word, verse 12, deed ministry. We're all called and we're all prepared for works of service so that the body of Christ would be built up. We're all called to that. Until what? Verse 13, that's the third thing. Until there's a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature. Now, the unity of the faith, whenever you see the faith, he's not talking about that your faith will just improve. He's talking about the faith, the gospel, knowledge and understanding. He's talking about the same thing, knowledge of the Son of God and the faith. He says that you will grow deeper in that. There will be a unity that comes when you come under the ministry of the word and it leads you, empowers you towards works of service. And as everybody in the church is doing that, there develops a very special bond, a very special unity in the faith. Your understanding of the gospel becomes uh, collectively, becomes uh, keener, deeper, so that your love for Christ will grow and you become mature. The logic of the text shows you that from the ministry of the word leads to the ministry of deeds, a unity in knowledge, knowledge of Christ, and the maturity of the church. It all points to the maturity of the church. Verse 14 kind of caps that. He says, then you will no longer be infants. You will attain to the whole measure of the fullness of God. That's what he says. In other words, if you're in the church and you are intentionally submitting yourself, surrendering yourself to people who speak truth and love to you, and that moves you, that spurs you, that encourages you, strengthens you to act as a result, a special bond in the church develops, a bond in your understanding of the gospel, the faith, and you grow. That's how spiritual growth happens. Now, if you come in and you're all about, you know, I'm going to serve, it's all about deeds, we're going to go out there, we're just going to serve, 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 and you don't come under the ministry of the word, what happens is you're going to just pour out on your own strength, and that makes you angry, and it makes you tired because you're just working and working and working and working, and there's going to be no oneness. In fact, if anything, there's going to be a lot of fighting, and there's no unity in the faith. Paul says you're immature. You could have a great heart to serve, And yet, if you don't come under the counsel of the word, 
with people who are speaking truth in your life, you're immature. And you're going to be tired, and you're going to fight with people, and you're going to be arrogant. You'll be bold on one hand, but you won't be humble. On the other hand, if you're all about, I'm just going to learn, I'm here to learn, I'm here to grow, I just want to seek counsel and have people speak into me, but you don't move. You don't serve. It's like having this great big engine and you're just revving it. You're just revving it. You're going to be humble, but you'll never be bold. We all need the ministry of the word. We all need the ministry of the word that's going to equip us, that's going to power us to serve because of the life of God that is in us. And that's what creates the special bond, the special unity. You know, if you have a group of people, mission trips tend to do this. They get counseled and trained in a particular way, and then they go off. We have a number of people here who have had experiences like this. You have a group of people who are counseled and trained, and then they go off, and they head off to a mission trip where they go off and they serve in a particular capacity. A special bond develops. A special unity develops. Your understanding of the faith, your understanding of Christ and it's not that it's so much fuller. It's fuller for you. You grow in that. And, and that leads to a deeper maturity. That's really what Paul is saying here. In many ways, the goal is not just to find that kind of a bond. See, we here, we live in a world that's so connected. We want to find friends. We want to find community. We, we use the word, oh, I'm here for community. I'm here for community. The goal is not to find that bond. The goal is not to just get in with people who share that bond. You're missing the point. What happens is when you come under the ministry of the word that leads you, empowers you to serve, and that becomes personal to you, verse 15, we will grow up into him who is the head. We'll be connected. From him the whole body, joined and held together, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's the process, you see. That's the process. But there's a problem. And Paul says, you know, on one hand, you have this life, this great power, the triune God. That's what you see in verses 1 through 6. The triune God is in you. There's this integration of the Son and the Spirit and the Father in you, and it's inseparable. That's what the gospel does. It creates this inseparable integration between the triune God and yourself. But, but the apostle Peter, he says, you're born again. You're like newborn babies. If you read Peter's epistle, that's what he says. In the beginning, he says, we're born again. And towards the end of that book, he says, you're like newborn babies. Infants, they grow, and they grow, and they grow, and they learn very quickly. But if you stay an infant, that'd be a horrible thing. You don't want that. What does it mean to be a spiritual infant? And Paul lays that out right here. The text says at least three things. There's probably more. I'm just going to lay out three things that the text shows us here. One, spiritual babies are unstable. Verse 14, they're tossed back and forth by the waves. Then we will, be no, lo- then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. In other words, they're fickle. They don't commit when things get difficult. They don't follow through when they, when they don't feel like it. You ever see a baby? One minute, they're crying and wailing. Next minute, they're laughing and having a ball. One minute, they're angelic. The next minute, they're psychotic. Right? That's babies. Paul says it's because they're mature. They don't grasp the concept of patience. They don't grasp that there's a future glory if they just wait. 
if they just ride suffering out sometimes, through suffering, through weakness. Babies, they just want relief. Babies mope around. Babies sulk. Babies pout. Babies want comfort. They don't want counsel. Babies want relief. They don't want repentance. Babies want deliverance. They don't want discipleship. If that's how we operate, then Paul says, you're immature. Two, infants, Paul says here, they're blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Spiritual babies can't discern. Right? Babies can't discern. Spiritual babies can't discern. Spiritual babies are easy to trick. They're easy. They're deceivable. And Paul says it's because you haven't come under the ministry of the Word. You neglect the Word of God. You ever watch a baby? Uh, you know, just watching my two nephews kind of learn from the moment they were born to watching them crawl around, one thing that happens in that stage where they first start to learn to crawl is that anything they see on the ground, they pick up, and what do they do? They put it in their mouth. They think everything is food, right? Babies can't tell the difference between good food and poison. You know, they just put anything in their mouth. A spiritual infant, as a result, they're unreasonably foolish because babies are also very stubborn, right? So, uh, remember, the text here says that immature people are not immature because they're so closed-minded. It actually says the opposite. Immature people are immature because they're too open-minded. They're blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Every wind of teaching. They'll take in anything as long as it satisfies them. If they want something, they're going to go looking for approval for that thing. That's what they'll do. They want to take in anything. That's what babies do. They cannot discern the truth, a truth that saves them and a truth that ruins them. They look for, in fact, just what they want. They're blown here and there, anything that's going to satisfy them. They don't have enough exposure, nor the experience, nor the shaping to develop a grid for good judgment in their lives that's born through humility and submission and surrender. You know, we have a generation of people, uh, you know, teachers. We have a lot of teachers in this room. You can probably speak to this probably better than I can. I just read scholarly texts on it. We have a generation of people who are not looking to learn. You know, we just heard a missions presentation where there's a country with a generation of people that are not available, present to teach. We live in a culture and a society here filled with a group of younger people that don't want to learn from people who are older. Number three, babies are incredibly selfish. If babies don't get what they want, what happens? Do they sit and are they calm about it? No, they always throw a fit. They throw a temper tantrum. And Paul says, essentially, spiritual babies are like that as well. They're always thinking about themselves. They're always focused on other people's sins, what they've done wrong to them, right? They're never looking at their own faults, their own, uh, they, you know, babies have a tough time uh, apologizing, right? Babies have a tough time uh, seeking, for, for, seeking forgiveness, Babies are much more concerned, infants are much more concerned about what's being done to them than what they've committed. They're always dwelling on their own hurts. They're always dwelling on their own suffering. But you never see them open to owning up to, their, to the hurts that they've caused. They only think about what they receive, what they get out of something. They don't sit there and think about other people. Why do they do that? It's because they're not prepared to serve. 
They haven't been trained or equipped to serve. They've never submitted to the word. You know what maturity is? Maturity is doing what you're committed to doing, regardless how you feel at a given point in time. Maturity is doing what you're committed to doing, regardless what storms and waves are in your life. Because you're humble, because you're steady, because you're patient, because you're enduring, because you're not diverted, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trial. Paul says when you're able to do that, you will be able to see and experience God doing something in you and through you that you could never have done alone, on your own. That's the groundwork for unity, you see. That's that shared experience. The groundwork for the unity and the groundwork for maturity. That's what happens. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, right? Uh, Not like a class, but more as a pastor, right? I'm going to ask you a few questions. Number one, are you submissive to the Word of God? Are you submissive to the preaching and the teaching and the counsel of those around you, the warnings of those around you, the calling of those around you, the admonition of those around you, the discipleship of those around you? Are you submissive to the Word? Have you placed yourself under the counsel of the Word? Two, this is probably more personal. Is there, is there real change that actually reaches your heart as a result? I'll say it this way. Do you have the courage to go to a leader or anybody, I guess, in the church, to ask somebody in the church, am I humbler than last year? Do you have the courage and the humility to ask that question? Am I more self-controlled than last year? Do you see me as less angry than last year? Am I more repentant than last year? Do you see me as uh, more generous than last year? Am I less gossiping than last year? Do I complain less than last year? Do I judge people less than last year? Do I pity myself less than last year? Am I more joyful than last year? Am I more giving, more open than last year, more vulnerable than last year? You know, in Revelation 3, Revelation 3 is a, is a pretty complicated book. Um, you know, if, unless you learn how to read Revelation, it took me a long time uh, to learn how to study the book of Revelation. But in Revelation 3, Jesus is essentially sending a message to a number of churches. And John's kind of relaying this message, John the Apostle. And there's one letter to the church in Sardis. And it says this. Jesus is telling the church in Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's what he says. In other words, you look alive. When people see you, it looks like a lively church. You have gifts. You're serving. You're part of ministries. You're participating in these ministries. You're even leading these ministries. But you are dead, he says. Why? He says, what you've received, the gospel, what you've heard, the gospel, you don't remember it. He says, remember it. Obey it. Repent. He says, the gospel, what you've heard, the gospel, it should move you towards a greater love for Jesus. And that 
is, should power your faith. That should power your desire to know Jesus. But you don't pursue it. You don't pursue those things. A maturing person says, I want to apply what I've heard. I want it to, I want it to go deep. Show me how it can go deeper. Keep me accountable to what, how it can go deeper. How do you do it? Where's the power for it? Because you can't do it on your own. You need life-giving people around you who will spur you on and encourage you. You need to have deep involvement. This is the third point. This is the third P, the power, right? You need deep involvement in the church until you all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul's talking about as the ministry of the Word powers you towards service in the church, service towards the community. As the ministry of the Word shapes you to, towards repentance and changes you and transforms you in act, in deed. As the ministry of the word goes into the root so that fruit, right, before there were thorns, now there's fruit, will start to grow. As the ministry of the word is working in your life, then what happens is you grow in a deep personal experience of the gospel, that's what he says. There's a unity in one's understanding of the gospel. And there's a unity in that experience, in that understanding. That's what happens. The gospel is what? A deep personal experience of a rational body of truth. Right? It's not living in line with what you don't know. You know, that what they call a leap of faith. The gospel is a deep personal experience of a rational body of truth. You need to pursue it. On one hand, it's truth. So it's real. It happened. It's convincing. It's going to argue with you. You've got to let the Bible argue with you. Because if you have a God that doesn't argue with you, that always acquiesces to your demands, that is only there as a product of your own needs and your desires, then it, that thing is not God. That entity is not God. It is not God you serve. You need a Bible that's going to argue with you, a Bible that's going to shape you, but on the other hand, it's got to be a personal experience. It's got to move you. It's got to excite you. It's got to shape your soul. It's got to lead you to the light. It's got to burst you into excitement and joy and a desire. You know, in Luke chapter 24, uh, the disciples, they met the risen Jesus. Jesus had resurrected from the dead. He'd risen from the dead. And, and he encounters these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And there he opens up the scriptures to them. And he disciples them, essentially, he brings them under the ministry of the word. He opens up the, the scriptures to them, and he shows them from Moses and the prophets that all these uh, things in the Bible were about him all along. And they ask him to stay, and he leaves. And they say, what they say is, were not our hearts burning within us? Were not, wasn't there power? Wasn't there joy? Wasn't there excitement? When what? When he opened up the scriptures to us. When they came under the ministry of the word. There will be a unity in your understanding of Christ, the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what he says. You know, the Greek word, that word knowledge there, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. That word is epinosis. Epinosis. You see, the Greeks, the Romans, they were obsessed with finding ultimate truth, real reality, the meaning of life. And Paul says that exists, that actually exists, but it's in a person. 
It's in Jesus. And if you grasp Jesus, he will shape you, he will change you, he will save you. That's what he says. He says, don't just know about him. That's gnosis. He says, I want you to know him. Epinosis. To the core of your heart. To the center of your soul. That's what he says. I need you to know him. Grasp him. The chapter before, he says that you would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. He doesn't want you to just know him. He wants you to epi-know him. Epi-know him. You will reach a unity in the epi-knowing of Christ. To know it to the central, deepest core of who you are so that it shapes your decisions, shapes even your desires. Can you believe that? Shapes even your desires. Your desires will be renewed. Will you submit to him in a way that the gospel will grip you? Beyond your own gifts, nowhere here, he starts talking about gifts, but nowhere here is the emphasis on the gifts. The emphasis is this process of maturity that begins with the ministry of the word. Spiritual maturity comes when there's a unity in an epi-knowing of the Son of God. No, the goal is not the unity. He says you'll reach unity until we all reach this unity. In Genesis chapter 11, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, people, they come together. There's unity. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. And so what they do is there's this oneness, and they have all these talents, and they bring their talents and their deeds, and there was great intent. What they were doing is they were building a tower of Babel. They were building this tower. It was actually a temple, Babel. And it was good intent. They wanted access to God. They said, if we build this temple together, we can reach. Temple was always the highest, uh, the, the highest point of any city. And they said, we can build this structure and have our close, direct contact with God. And they were using their gifts, and they were working, and they were slaving to do this. And what happens? God comes down, and he dashes his temple. And here Paul says, you will build the church through your oneness in faith in the gospel. That unity and maturity, unity and maturity are not goals within themselves. But as you grow in the word and as you grow in your service and your love for others, because he says speaking the truth in love, and he says your deeds are done in love, as you grow in the word, as you grow in this ministry of works, you will experience, through that dynamic, you will experience an epinosis and a oneness in that epinosis together in Jesus. And that's going to excite you. And that's going to power you. That's going to move you. In fact, you know, he says, there'll be a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and you will become mature, he says. That phrase, and you will become mature, in the Greek, it's you will become one mature man. Think about it. Before, he says, you, will be, you are infants. You are babies, plural. And he says, but if you seek Christ and the love of Christ, and if you seek to know and experience in a personal way, in a way that it's really shaping you, in a way that that engine now is revving, and you're putting that engine in drive, and you're going. He says, when you do that together as a body, what happens is you become one mature man. You know who that man is? It's Jesus. You become like Christ. You become like Jesus. Jesus Christ is the holy king who came down. 
Genesis chapter 11, God comes down, dashes the tower. John chapter 3, here's Jesus. He's in the temple. He's overturning the tables, right? Money flying everywhere, right? Because there's money changers sitting in the outer courts of this temple. And the people said, who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus says, tear down this temple. Dash it to pieces. I will raise it back up in three days. And John now, looking back, writes, he says, but the temple that he was speaking about was his body. What does that mean? First of all, Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate temple. You can't build this temple to gain access to God through your works. I am the one. I am the ultimate temple. Through me, there you will find, you will receive direct access to God, intimately, privately, personally, and as a church, you will experience intimate access with God. And just like God came down to Babel to tear it down, Jesus came down not to tear down the temple, but to be torn down himself. And so on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now, this triune God, the life of God is not with me. My soul is being torn apart. The Trinity, because God had forsaken. He says, I am forsaken. My God has forsaken me. That means the Trinity itself was ripped apart. This intimate integration, this intimate unity, the perfect picture of unity in faith and knowledge of God, the perfect picture of that unity ripped apart on the cross as Jesus is being forsaken by the Father. And he says, there once I and the Father are one. My Father knows me. I know the Father. He says, if you know me, you know the Father. And yet on the cross, he says, I am forsaken by my Father. In fact, it's the only place in the Bible where Jesus doesn't call his God his Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am disintegrated. And yet do you know, to the end, the Son stays stable. Jesus remains selfless. Jesus remains humble. He remains patient. He remains trusting, undiverted, discerning, enduring, never fickle. You know what he was doing on the cross? He was reciting Psalm 22, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the end, even in his deepest suffering, as the Father himself had dissociated from him, Jesus remained submissive to the ministry of the word in his life. And he trusted the Father even as he was being rejected. It moved him. It moved him. The ministry of the word moved him. And so he was able to do the ultimate act of service in saving his people through his suffering and through his weakness. Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, Let us fix our eyes on Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The gospel so moved Jesus that even on the cross, he endured the cross, its suffering, its shame, with joy. With joy. To the extent, you know, Jesus on the cross, there was a future glory that he was pursuing, and it brought him joy. That was the church. You are his delight. We are his delight. And to the extent that that, that Christ delights in his people, that Christ delights in you, to the extent that that moves you, you will treasure Jesus. You will delight in Jesus. You see, 
If your agenda in the church is unity, community on your terms, if your agenda is unity on your terms, community on your terms, you will be angry. You will be angry. You will be tired. You will be just working for approval and judging people based on what you, your standards. That's what's going to happen. But if the gospel is your reality, that you are in because Christ was forsaken, if the gospel moves you and shapes you, then the word of God, you can trust it. Every time you see the cross, you're reminded of God's love for you. You can trust him. Then the word of God will be your delight. You will treasure it. You will come under the ministry of the word. It will power what you do. There will be unity together in an epi knowledge. The reason why we do community groups is that. Every community group, we're talking about the gospel. I know that. Why do we do that? Every week, then, is an opportunity for you to connect with other people in the church, to grow, to pursue an epi-knowledge of Christ. And you will find together that Jesus is all you need. And you will find together that Jesus is our healing. And you will find together that Jesus is our strength. And you will find together that Jesus calls, Jesus sends. Jesus calls, Jesus sends. There's power. There's tremendous power. And if you seek to know this, seek to know this, epi know it, it will shape you to the core. It will take you anywhere. It will take you anywhere. Friends, the last thing I ever saw myself doing was being a pastor of a church, (laughs) right? The hardest thing to do, the hardest thing to give is in. Will you surrender yourself to the ministry of the word? Let's pray.